Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Long Civil Rights Movement. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Fighting Against. African Americans were not just passive victims. They fought against discrimination and racial violence since the Civil War. But what were they fighting against? Remember, Jim Crow, or segregation laws, had first been enacted in the South in the 1880s, starting first on railroads. This discrimination was upheld by the Supreme Court in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision in 1896. As you recall, Plessy could pass as white, as he had a single black great-grandparent, but he informed the railroad that he intended to board the only white car and as a result, he was arrested in Louisiana. When the case got before the Supreme Court, Plessy argued that the law violated his 14th Amendment right to equal protection, but the court disagreed so long as the cars were separate but equal. Jim Crow and the separate but equal policy eventually spread to all types of public facilities, including streetcars, prisons, parks, and washrooms. Concurrently, there are also disfranchisement laws in the South, and by 1908, every former Confederate state required would-be voters to pay a poll tax. Poll taxes were usually collected at times of the year when sharecroppers had no available money to pay. Many states also had literacy tests. This is where you were forced to read the state constitution and answer constitutional questions to the satisfaction of a poll worker. However, due to the grandfather clause, poor illiterate whites did not have to do this, since the grandfather clause said that anyone whose grandfather voted in 1860 could vote in any election, which clearly does not apply to enslaved African Americans. These laws did not directly violate the 15th Amendment because while that amendment says that you cannot deny the right to vote based on, quote, race, color, or previous condition of servitude, end quote, it says nothing about money to vote, nor does it say anything about literacy. Another impediment on the right to vote is the white primary. Only whites were allowed to vote in democratic primaries because the courts in the era said that political parties are organizations that are not part of the state hence the 15th Amendment does not apply. Segregation and disfranchisement do two different things. Segregation prevents urban blacks and whites from working together or unionizing to challenge poor working conditions and pay, while disfranchisement ensures white minority rule in African-American majority districts. Thus, the political and economic system is rigged in favor of the white-landed elite, merchants, and business owners. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Antecedents. The civil rights movement gained a lot of momentum and national attention in the 1950s, but it did not sprout from thin air. In fact, African Americans started fighting for civil rights almost as soon as Jim Crow and disfranchisement laws were passed. For example, in 1903, African Americans in Little Rock, Pine Bluff, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, organized boycotts of the town's segregated streetcars. While some worked to challenge the system, 
others want to find ways to work within it. A good example of this is Booker T. Washington in his theory of accommodationism, which told African Americans to work hard, build prosperous communities, and become industrious property owners, and then white Americans would eventually learn to respect them. Washington even founded the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, which sought to teach industrial education and other skills, which would allow African Americans to get better jobs and make money in order to earn respect. W.E.B. Du Bois is an example of someone who sought to change the system. He was the first African American to earn a Harvard PhD. He was a sociologist, a historian, a poet, a journalist, an agitator, and a fervent critic of Booker T. Washington. Du Bois wanted African Americans to demand for equal rights and opportunities immediately, and he promoted a liberal arts education for the talented 10th, who would become community leaders who would then push for the struggle. Du Bois also articulated the concept of Tunis among African Americans, which was the struggle to be both American with full rights and to maintain a distinct African American identity. In 1905, he called a meeting of African Americans opposed to accommodationism at Niagara Falls, New York, but U.S. hotels would not allow them to meet, so they met on the Canadian side of the falls. As a result, the Niagara Movement was founded, which demanded an end to discrimination in public accommodations, which eventually became the NAACP in 1910. As we described before, Marcus Garvey sought to leave the system entirely. He founded the United Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, which promoted black independence and even advocated for the resettling of African Americans back to the continent of Africa. The UNIA was a blacker, more bottom-up organization compared to the interracial and top-down NAACP. At its height, it had as many as 4 million members and supported defensive measures and segregation in order to protect black women from white men rapists. The last example is Madam C.J. Walker, an entrepreneur and self-made African-American female millionaire being the first black female millionaire in American history. She created the C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, which made cosmetic products for African-American women. And she said of herself, quote, I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I've built my own factory on my own ground, end quote. Walker gave a lot of money to many charitable and philanthropic causes, including the Tuskegee Institute, the NAACP, the Negro War Relief, and other various churches and universities like Bethune-Cookman University. Her penthouse in New York City became an important site for social gatherings among other reform-minded African Americans. And she is a prominent example of an oppressed black woman rising up and succeeding despite such disadvantages. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Between the Wars. As we've described, 
During this era, the Great Migration is occurring, in which 6 million African Americans moved to the West and North from 1916 to 1917. We also see the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan in this era, and expanded beyond trying to control the African American vote and black labor, and they extended into opposition of all things non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. This is the Klan of the 1920s that marched on Washington with their hoods off, as they did not fear to be known as white supremacists. One of the more interesting legal episodes in the interwar period is the Osian Sweet court case in Detroit in 1925. Sweet was a doctor who wanted to move to a better neighborhood, which happened to be a white neighborhood, and he was immediately met with antagonism and hostility, so he asked his brother and a friend to help protect his property. Unfortunately, this story is a familiar one. Rumors began to spread, a white mob gathered outside of his home and attempted to commit arson and burn it down. In the process, shots were fired, some whites were wounded, and Sweet was arrested. What is surprising is that when Sweet was tried, he was acquitted on self-defense by the defense attorney Clarence Darrow, who he met at the Scopes trial. This is important because there was a great deal of support for Sweet from white urban ethnics, unions, and the white liberals of Detroit. So here, we see the initial gleaning of the eventual New Deal coalition. And there's a clip I have put on the PowerPoint, which is about four minutes long, so please go ahead and watch it. Please turn to the next slide, entitled, World War II. During the Second World War, one million African Americans served, albeit in segregated units and a flight school was established for African Americans at Tuskegee, and the Tuskegee Airmen would end up flying 1,600 fighter support missions in North Africa and Europe, and never lost a bomber during that service. However, most black soldiers served as laborers in mess halls or in other menial labor. Many black intellectuals wondered if African Americans should fight for a country that oppressed them, and ultimately they decided to fight for the Double V campaign, meaning victory over fascism abroad and racism at home. As I've already stated, the Great Migration continues and peaks during this period, when 1.6 million African Americans left the South for the North and West to work in defense industries. However, they were still discriminated against. So in 1941, A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union, threatened that 50,000 African Americans would march on Washington to protest discrimination in wartime industries and the armed forces. Again, this shows us the historical precedent for protesting for rights inequality in marching on Washington. Randolph agreed to cancel the march when FDR issued an executive order banning discrimination in the defense industries, as well as creating the FEPC or Fair Employment Practices Commission, which would oversee and enforce the order. While African Americans were still discriminated against in other industries and in society in general, we see some steps in the right direction. In 1942, the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, was founded, which is a multiracial civil rights organization that was committed to nonviolent direct action. 
and this organization will prove pivotal during the 1950s and 60s. Finally, in 1944, the Supreme Court ruled in Smith v. Allwright that political parties were not independent organizations, but part of the state and thus subject to the 14th and 15th Amendments. This effectively ends the white primary. Now whites and blacks can vote in Democratic primaries, though intimidation and other disfranchisement techniques still prevent many poor whites and African Americans from voting. The point is that World War II is going to help open the floodgates to reform, as African Americans and their allies will push for equality and social justice. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Post-World War II. In 1944, the introduction of the mechanical cotton picker changed American agriculture forever. This piece of equipment can take the place of many agricultural workers, which means that southern farms no longer need as many black sharecroppers and tenant farmers. So over the next three decades, five million sharecroppers, both white and black, were sent north. By the 1960 census, sharecropper was eliminated as a category of employment, and by 1970, one half of all African Americans lived outside of the South. The experience of the war also made segregation and disfranchisement more precarious, because Hitler and the Holocaust had made the evils of racial bigotry all too apparent. So going forward, more whites supported civil rights. In addition, during the Cold War, Jim Crow was a national embarrassment. The United States and the Soviet Union were competing for the loyalty of third world nations in Africa and Asia, and communist countries loved to point out that in the United States, non-whites were discriminated against. Another important event occurred in 1948, when Truman signed an executive order banning racial discrimination in federal hiring and he desegregated the military. This in turn created a white conservative backlash that created the Dixiecrats, led by Strom Thurmond. Though they ultimately lost, they set a precedent for political realignment to resist civil rights that presaged 1968. As we have seen, African Americans were not passive victims and they continued their long legal fight for civil rights led by the NAACP. Their legal team included Thurgood Marshall, who would go on to be the first black Supreme Court justice in American history. At first, NAACP lawyers did not demand the desegregation of all public schools. Instead, they decided to focus on graduate and professional schools, like law and medical school, to show that southern states were not complying with a separate but equal doctrine, in part because states could simply not afford to do so. An example of this is Silas Hunt, the first African-American law student at the University of Arkansas. In 1948, the U of A decided to self-integrate, but only because they knew other court cases were coming down the pipe. Hunt unfortunately suffered during his time at the school. His class was partitioned by cloth so that he could not interact with his white students. He was forced to stay in the basement under terrible conditions, and he worked or studied in substandard facilities. Some of his fellow students pressured the law school to allow him to engage in discussion with them, but ultimately, he died before graduating because he caught a sickness from the poor conditions he lived in, 
So while the university likes to talk about his role in civil rights, he was treated poorly by the school. Another example is Heman Sweet, a former mailman who applied to law school at the University of Texas in Austin. UT proposed to establish a black law school staffed by part-time faculty in three basements in Houston. The NAACP took up this case and argued that this was not equal to the law school in Austin, which had a big library, distinguished faculty, alumni, and all the other accoutrements. So in 1950, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Sweet. So we see the strategy of selected court cases is slowly working. But segregationists see this and begin to resurrect the lost cause and neo-Confederate sentiments to resist the civil rights movement. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Desegregation. Four years later, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka that segregation was unconstitutional. Chief Justice Earl Warren read the ruling opinion. Quote, We conclude unanimously that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. End quote. So in other words, the Supreme Court had overturned the Plessy v. Ferguson decision. And this would apply to all public education, not just graduate school. In the second court case, called Brown II, the following May, the court ruled that Southern federal judges were in charge of implementing the Brown decision and that they should proceed with, quote, all deliberate speed. This was a miscalculation. The Supreme Court wanted to end segregation. They had seen so many cases about it, they knew it should end. But they realized the political conditions in the South might not allow it. They know that if they do a strict law right now, it will knock the wind out of the Southern moderates. So to elevate Southern moderates, they use that phrase, all deliberate speed, so that Southern moderates can do it gradually and over time. But this ultimately doesn't happen. Because once Brown 1 is issued, Southern extremists rise up and no compromise is possible. So this is a failed attempt for the court to let moderates reform politically rather than a top-down decision to force the social issue. Southern politicians accused the Supreme Court and Ward in particular of being communists and in trying to destroy the country as well as polluting the white race. This is an example of the Red Scare being used against civil rights and is one of the many unfortunate aspects of the Cold War using fear to prevent progress. And this continues to this day as protesters are called socialists or worse. Some states and areas quietly complied with a ruling. In May 1955, the Little Rock, Arkansas School Board announced it would comply with the Brown decision by opening one of its schools, Little Rock Central High, in the poorer neighborhood, to a few black students in the fall of 1957. Now initially, there is no issue with this. It's pretty much ignored. Arkansans really weren't very concerned with integration before a Southern politician made it his central campaign point. More on that later. The point is that the Supreme Court missed an opportunity to force desegregation across the country in the hopes of empowering moderates to reform everything gradually. Instead, as we will see, many radicals resisted desegregation 
and we live with those consequences to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Segregationist Backlash. The Brown decision angered many white Southerners and galvanized segregationists. Southern politicians pledged massive resistance to Brown. And there's a clip on the PowerPoint I want you to watch now, which is an interview between Wallace and James Eastland. Many historians believe that massive resistance began in 1954, though others say it began in 1948 due to the integration of the U.S. armed forces and the adoption of a civil rights plank in the Democratic Party. This resistance to civil rights will occur at every single level of society. It included domestic terrorism, violence, intimidation, legal challenges, economic pressure, political pressure, basically whatever it will take to stop integration. Practically speaking, this means that segregationists pack state courts, and they pack state legislatures. They conduct propaganda campaigns, they proliferate fake news, and everything in between. This lasts and successfully fights off integration well into the 1970s, and some scholars believe, up to this day. Another response to desegregation was the adoption of, quote, token compliance, or minimum compliance, which meant that one African-American child in a white school was deemed compliant with desegregation. Regardless, in 1956, 100 Southern congressmen and senators signed the Southern Manifesto, which pledged resistance to desegregation. Only two Southern senators refused to sign the pledge, Al Gore's father, Albert Gore Sr., and Lyndon Baines Johnson, as both had national aspirations. Senator J. William Fulbright of Arkansas, who has a statue outside of Old Maine, signed this document, though he stated he later regretted it. Critical to these efforts was the White Citizens Council, which was formed across the South to conduct massive resistance. And this is like the middle or upper class version of the KKK. Instead of using violence, they sought to hurt blacks economically if they tried to cross racial boundaries by firing them from jobs, denying them loans, and insurance. In addition, politicians passed laws that outlawed organizations that pushed for civil rights, like the NAACP, and they even published the names of members in their state newspapers so they could be targeted by the KKK for retribution. As I alluded to before, they also used McCarthy-like tactics and transported it to the racial environment of the South. So since McCarthy says Democrats are secret communists, Southerners say that civil rights organizations are communist front organizations controlled by the Soviet Union. The White Citizen Council and its supporters draw a straight line between Supreme Court rulings and the Soviet crushing of the Hungarian Revolution during the 1950s. And these efforts are very successful. Most poor white Southerners did not care about segregation before this, but when these politicians use the tactics of McCarthyism and amplify the rhetoric of anti-communism, they use it to scare people and to whip them up against integration and against civil rights. The point is that it is a tried-and-true tactic to paint protest movements as communist and worse, in order to prevent reform. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Emmett Till. For many African Americans, the tipping point or final straw 
was the murder of the 14-year-old boy Emmett Till in 1955. In that year, Emmett Till lived in Chicago, and he visited his extended family living in Money, Mississippi. Till grew up loving baseball, and his cousin had visited him in Chicago often since there was a direct rail line between Illinois and Mississippi, indicating the close connection between northern and southern African American communities. Now, obviously in Chicago, there is racism and informal Jim Crow laws, but not the violence of southern segregation. So young Emmett Till was not used to the southern tradition, and he even went to an integrated school in Chicago, and so he had not experienced the type of racism that other African Americans were accustomed to. So as I said, in 1955, he went to visit his cousins in Money, Mississippi. While there, he fished, he picked cotton to earn extra money, and he enjoyed buying candy at the local store. While in Mississippi, Till had spoken to a white woman in a store, and some even claimed he had whistled at her as he left the store, but no one can agree on this matter. This broke a long-standing rule in the South. Black men were not to talk to or sexualize white women. Doing so was a virtual death sentence. His cousins knew that he was in trouble, and his uncle knew that something bad could happen, and so he wanted to get Till out of the state quickly. But in the middle of the night, armed men came for him, and they made black sharecroppers who had been at the store identify him. They pistol-whipped his uncle, and they took Till to their farm. There, Emmett Till was brutally beaten for hours, and farmed hands claimed they heard his panicked shrieks in the begging of his life as larger, older men beat this young man. After some hours, a gunshot rang out. His panicked shrieks ended, and Till lay dead. A child was killed just because he was black and had allegedly spoken to a white woman. Till's body was tied to a large cotton gin fan and tossed into the Tallahatchie River. His body was found by a boy and his father out fishing, who contacted the local sheriff. But mind you, this was not the first black body found in the river that year who had been lynched. This was a norm of the era. The sheriff of the area that his body had been dumped was actually sympathetic to this, but the sheriff in the county where he had actually been killed was a member of the KKK, and so he came over county lines and took over the investigation and tried to bury the whole thing. This was thwarted only because of the pushing from Emmett Till's mother in Chicago and his uncle's questioning of numerous people in Mississippi, which forced the sheriff and the coroner to finally give up Till's body, but they nailed his coffin shut and sent it to Chicago, expecting the whole thing to be dropped. Instead, his mother insisted on an open casket funeral back in Chicago so the world could see what these men had done to her beloved son. You can find pictures of Emmett Till's corpse online today, and as you can see, his wounds were horrific. Mrs. Till just wanted justice, as any mother would. Eventually, there was a trial, but the men who everyone knew were guilty were acquitted after 10 minutes and it only took that long because the jury were waiting on some cokes. The trial itself is interesting, because the judge in the trial is said to have acted extremely fairly, and even allowed the black press in and treated them with respect. 
the press from all over the world descended on Money, Mississippi to witness this trial. And Emmett's uncle made the decision to publicly call out the two white men who had taken his nephew under oath. By standing up in court and pointing at two white men, he was essentially signing his own death warrant. This resulted in an immediate Klan notice, which put a hit out on Emmett Till's uncle, Moses Wright. Eventually, he was forced to relocate under private protection from Mississippi to Chicago and then later Detroit. Those white murderers were heroes in their hometown and after their acquittal, gave an interview to Life magazine where they openly admitted to the crime because they claimed that Till had tried to rape that white woman called Carolyn Bryant. Hence to them and other white communities, this horrific act was justified. But in fact, there was no rape, and the woman who accused him, Mrs. Bryant, now admits that he had never touched her or spoke to her inappropriately. This event really spurred on the civil rights movement, as both white and black Americans realized that things had to change. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. Look at the next slide of Emmett Till's sign being shot with bullets. Every time this sign is put up, it keeps getting shot. And recently, several frat members at Ole Miss were expelled for shooting the sign and taking a picture next to it with their rifles. This is abhorrent behavior. It is sickening beyond words that a simple sign to a hate crime is shot by white supremacists. We must all decry this type of hatred, lest it infect the rest of the country. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Please listen to part two of the long civil rights movement. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.